One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The FT. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we concentrate on the results of the European bank stress tests, which were released on Friday. A bunch of banks raised capital ahead of the April 30th deadline, which they would have failed if they hadn't. So the EBA considers that a massive success. Others would say the fact that only eight little banks failed is a sign that they were a bit on the wimpy side. And we anticipate numbers of the second quarter earnings for 2011. I do think we're going to see a big split with the European banks because they have suffered much more from the dithering over the European sovereign crisis. And that has really led to clients here sitting on the sidelines. And anyone who's been following recently knows how many IPOs have gotten pulled out of London and out of Europe recently. It hasn't been a good market. Finally, we take a look at Lloyd's Banking Group and the process of selling 632 branches. The lack of competition for this is the fact that, as we understand it, the bids are all at the lower end of expectations, closer to $2 billion than to $3 billion. Joining me this week is the FT's investment banking correspondent, Megan Murphy, chief regulatory correspondent, Brooke Masters, and retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff. Let's start the show with stateside, though. This week, the US banking update comes from Tom Braithwaite. Over to you, Tom. Thanks, Patrick. This week from the US, we're going to concentrate on second quarter earnings as they produced three interesting surprises. JP Morgan Chase kicked us off, and this was really supposed to be the start of a bleak period of earning releases from the banks. We've had tepid trading activity in the second quarter, and low interest and mounting legal costs have also not helped. But in the event, JP Morgan was the first out of the traps to produce some decent results with a 13% jump in quarterly profits after it had fewer loan defaults and surprisingly resilient trading revenue. In response to the regulatory hassles hanging over JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, the CEO, said that JP Morgan will be fine. Things will adjust over time. And he said that the exposures in Europe would cost the bank about $3 billion if the worst case scenario for the euro came to pass. But he did not expect this. Citigroup then was the second bank to report, and it also surprised the upside with almost $2 billion that it had set aside for loan losses released and trading revenue also falling less than feared. John Gaspach, the CFO of Citi, suggested that a last decent week of 
trading had helped the bank avoid a potentially worse scenario. The third earnings surprise was that the earnings came at all, and that was from Greenhill, the investment bank, the boutique bank. After its shares fell 12% on Friday, it rushed out results on a Sunday, and the unusual move had helped calm markets by Monday. Greenhill's problems relate to departures from key personnel, and Timothy George, one of the bank's longest-serving employees, announced that he would take a job with Lazard. That helped spark the share price plunge. So we'll have to see how Greenhill adapts to the new world of banking, the new business models that its bigger rivals are all wrestling to come up with. Next week, we've got Goldman, we've got Bank of America, we've got Morgan Stanley, and we'll see if Wall Street can continue to outperform those expectations for the second quarter. Back to London. Thank you, Tom. Let's start with the results of the European Bank stress test here, which were released on Friday. We were all deeply embroiled in looking at the 3,200 data points released on each of the 90 banks that reported their results. There was one bank that dropped out at the last minute, Helleber, from Germany, because they didn't like the uh, the fact that they'd failed. But the results, I guess, overall, there were no surprises, Brooke. All the big quota banks passed, big surprise. A bunch of banks raised capital ahead of the April 30th deadline, which they would have failed if they hadn't. So the EBA considers that a massive success because they scared everyone to raising capital. Others would say the fact that only eight kind of piddling little banks failed is a sign that they were a bit on the wimpy side. And there was only a capital deficit identified of two and a half billion, as you say, which is maybe a, a tenth of what a lot of analysts had predicted. The gap should be if you stress tested properly for a Greek default, for example, which is the big thing that really isn't in those stress tests. There is some effort to at least make it possible for the market to stress test because the EBA is faced with a political problem, which is that they were not allowed to consider the possibility of default. They tried to back into the issue through probabilities of defaults, but they couldn't do a formal haircut. Basically modeling for what a credit rating agency downgrade would do or multiple downgrades would do to the probability of default of the sovereign. A kind of clever way to get at something that they politically couldn't really do. And also by releasing the data, they allowed analysts to model their own sovereign default. And, for example, Credit Suisse did a report and found that the capital shortfall, if you believed in serious downgrades for the troubled economies, was more like $80 billion. In some senses, I think the tests were doomed from the beginning because they weren't modeling explicitly for a haircut, particularly on Greece then the market was almost never going to be satisfied with what they came out with. I have found the reaction this morning, particularly among the UK banks, to be a bit interesting, Mm. given that the exposure of the big UK banks to the periphery is well known. There was nothing, I would say, that was extremely shocking about the numbers that came out, particularly for the UK banks. But yet, I think RBS shares were down as much as 4% this morning. But Megan, that's really because of the Irish issue for for the UK banks, right? Because they have very little exposure to Spain and Greece. And yet, there was no real surprises in them because their disclosures have been fairly fulsome, particularly RBS's in your annual reports and so on. And that's why I think the share price falls we've seen this morning reflect disenchantment in general with the fact that the stress tests have yet to put to bed this question of sovereign contagion and the impact it might have on Europe's financial system. I think it's a reaction more of agitation with the testing process in general and that still we have this unsettled question as Eurozone ministers continue to dither over 
you know, a bailout for Greece, a second bailout for Greece, private creditor involvement in that. And so that I think is interesting. And, and the, until that is resolved, investors in bank stocks, you know, invest at your peril. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But just quickly on the actual stress test, as Brooke said, the huge numbers of disclosure data points that banks had to make as part of this, both on their sovereign holdings and on their commercial credit exposures in all of these different countries, did allow analysts to conduct their own stress tests effectively. And interestingly, as you mentioned, the Credit Suisse analysis that was done over the weekend didn't do that much to change the ranking, if you like, of the banks. So for example, among the Eurozone blue chip banks, BBVA and Intesa came out at the top under the EBA tests, and they came out at the top under this kind of super stress test that was done by Credit Suisse. And yet, in terms of the share price response this morning, they're not outperforming. Nobody has been put at their ease, if you like, in, in terms of the investors. I think the problem is what Sir Mervyn King was trying to get at at one of the Bank of England's recent press conferences, where he said nobody knows the second order exposure. All this does is say who is directly lending to the troubled economies. What it doesn't say is if you are a UK bank that looks perfectly solid, do you have second order loans to Greece because you've loaned money to some Spanish bank that's then exposed to Greece? And there's nothing the market can do about that. As Megan said, until we sort this problem and the contagion just stops, I don't see how anyone's going to be particularly comfortable. And another big detail, I suppose, that people have criticized in the tests is that there's no real proper transparency on the writers of bond insurance, the CDS exposures, which banks wrote CDS for which other banks. Without knowing that, we don't know how valid that insurance is. If Greek banks, for example, have written CDS on Greek sovereign debt, then it probably isn't worth very much. But that kind of detail isn't in the disclosures. Just coming back to what Megan mentioned about the real issue was always going to be the case that regardless of the results of the stress test until that broader political issue of how do we deal with the Greek restructuring is dealt with, then there's not going to be any bounce really in Eurozone bank share prices. This Thursday, we have a summit where all Eurozone leaders are going to be present. Do you think that is going to be a key meeting, Megan? I'm trying to think back to exactly the date was when Sarkozy and Angela Merkel came forward in the most recent press comments, I think it was about three weeks ago, and basically said we had reached a deal on a restructuring for Greece. And we saw a slight uptick then in confidence. And as we've seen, that was in fact not true. And we seem to be politicians and in terms of what they say and then where we work out to in terms of the actual detail of getting a comprehensive program put forward seems to be still a very, very wide gulf. I'm personally, from the people I've spoken to, not confident that we'll see anything more than loud proclamations of we are getting there. Most people are headed away on holiday. There's just no way to change that. And I don't think we're going to see a comprehensive plan until September. What, what does seem to be coming more to the fore is, again, this issue about default and whether or not Eurozone ministers are prepared to accept the fact that Greece will default on some of its debt. And that is, I think, the realization in the market that that time is coming. But we had Trichet again, head of the European Central Bank, saying again this weekend in one of his clear statements that they will not accept any defaulted Greek debt as collateral, for which is Greek crucial banks. for the Greek banks yeah. and will actually freeze their funding. Saying that basically the, the private sector banking system would have to come to Greek banks' aid. Absolutely. It seems like this is becoming an intractable issue. And I'm not sure how we get from A to B, much less from A to you know, Z in terms of an actual program for Greece. 
Well, we'll keep monitoring this over the coming weeks. If you want to know more about the stress tests, do go to ft.com slash stress tests, where we have details of the results, our analysis, and a great all singing, all dancing graphic on the exposures of all the banks. Let's move on now to quarter two results. Despite all the uncertainties in the markets, the banks will be coming forward with their numbers over the next few days and weeks. We had the start of the quarter two results season in the US last week. Megan, you've been having a look at what we can expect really out of the remaining US banks and also the Europeans. I actually feel a bit bad about this. It's a bit of a mea culpa, I guess, to readers of the FT and listeners to the podcast. I think there are a lot of commentators who may have been overly negative about, particularly on the investment banking side, this quarter. The early results from JP Morgan and Citigroup, as we've just heard Tom say in stateside, were better than expected. Interestingly, both on obviously lower loan loss provisions and improving climate there, but most notably in investment banking, which we had expected a worse performance given that it's been so volatile, particularly in Europe, and that trading volumes are down. But what we've seen is that compensating for that has been a pickup for the U.S. banks in particular on investment banking fees. And when I say investment banking fees, I'm referring to M&A advisory fees, equity capital markets, and debt capital markets activity. It's been quite a good quarter for the sort of lead players on that in the U.S. More in the U.S. More in the U.S. where they've had a series of huge IPOs on the tech side and more deal-making activities. So what I think we're going to see, you know, look, one never knows, but given what JP Morgan and Citi posted, I'd be surprised if we didn't see a good quarter in investment banking fees for Goldman. Goldman is essentially a big trading house, though, so they will have more of a negative impact from the decline in, say, fixed income trading, which is their biggest component. I do think we're going to see a big split with the European banks because they have suffered much more from the dithering over the European sovereign crisis. And that has really led to clients here sitting on the sidelines, not only on the trading side, but also on the M&A. And anyone who's been following recently knows how many IPOs have gotten pulled out of London and out of Europe recently. It hasn't been a good market. So increasingly, it's looking less like what the FT and other papers had described as sort of a poor quarter across the board. I do think we'll see a split between the US and Europe and JP Morgan and and Goldman and Citi in particular look to be in a little bit better shape than their European rivals right now. Well, we'll hold you to that in the next few weeks and uh, come back and test your predictions. Moving on finally to Lloyd's Banking Group, the process of selling these branches, which they have to under the terms of an EU state aid ruling, is moving forward, Charlene. I think the big disappointment for Lloyd's last week was that there was no concrete offer from National Australia Bank. And this was really the potential bidder that seemed to be the front runner if it was interested. Now, um, NAB, just to remind listeners, is the uh, the group that owns Yorkshire and the Clydesdale bra- exactly. uh, brands in the UK. Yeah. Exactly. So they all already have fairly decent presence in the market, which would have given them a bit of a leg up to build on that with the Lloyd's acquisition. And I think Lloyds were quite hopeful that they would come in as they already had the infrastructure in place or the systems in place. NEB were always a little bit flaky. They seemed to be quite indecisive about whether they wanted to expand in the UK or withdraw from the UK altogether. And as far as we know, no firm offer has yet been put on the table from them. So we've only got really a handful of firm bids and they're all from the newer entrance. So Virgin Money is in there. The Cooperative Bank is in there. And then the other bidder in the fray is NBNK, this new venture set up specifically for the purpose of bidding for Lloyd. But at the moment, just a cash 
shell with the money there, but no systems. You were saying there that both bid from NAB, or had there been one, and the one from Co-op would be uh, attractive to Lloyd. And that's largely because of the scale that these competitors would have if they bought the branches, and that that would be a, a kind of riposte to the Independent Commission on Banking, the Sir John Vickers Commission, and their recommendations, right? Exactly that. I mean, the, the Vickers Commission is keen that whoever buys these branches can be a viable competitor in the market, and they're concerned that you sell to someone with no established network and they wouldn't have a big enough slice of the market to be able to go and compete with the top six. So selling to someone like the co-op or NAB would mean that the combined entity would have sort of a 7 8% share of the market maybe rather than a sort of 5% and would therefore have more power to go out and compete. But it's not exclusively that. We could see Virgin Money come in and use the purchase of Lloyd's as a sort of springboard for rapid growth. And that's Richard Branson has been very keen to say that he thinks he could do that quite quickly. They do already have 3 million customers in the UK retail market. Now, they're not current account holders, but they're mainly credit cards and insurance customers. But they could quite rapidly move to try and sell those customers' current accounts through the Lloyd's business. So that could equally satisfy the commission to some extent that while they wouldn't have the market share instantly they could have a very clear path to growing it and also interesting that no overseas buyers came in and the lack of competition for this is is the fact that as we understand it the bids are all at the lower end of expectations closer to two billion than to three billion well i suspect what lloyd's does from here on they want to get on with it quite quickly i think they exactly. want to narrow it down and and get through to the next round of bidding pushing forward that process by the end of this month so at that point i suspect they'd quite like to ramp up the sense of competition between the bidders sadly that's all we have time for today all that's left for me to do is to thank megan and brooke and charlene in the studio and also tom in new york banking weekly is produced by lj Filatroni. until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.